Now, moving to this evening, it's with enormous pleasure that I'd like to welcome the Right Honourable David Blunkett, MP, and Dr. Caroline Mitchell to Nottingham. And we're really grateful for you both finding the time in your diaries to come to talk to us this evening. I'd particularly like to thank my friend and colleague, Professor Nigel Mathers, for helping to organise this evening's meeting. Nigel is actually going to be here today, but he's gone to China. And um, he's promoting GP training in China and hopefully will arrange a very lucrative contract for us to train GPs in China. So uh, we wish him well with that, but we will have words with him later. Um, however, Caroline Mitchell's here to take his place, and Nigel's told me that she'll be very much better than him anyway. So that's good. Caroline's a senior lecturer in general practice at Sheffield University and a GP in Sheffield. In fact, she's a GP in the same practice as David's wife, Margaret, who I'm also delighted is here this evening. Caroline's been a GP partner in the same practice for the last 23 years and a university academic for 20 years with special interests in mental health uh, problems including alcohol and substance misuse. David, as you know, is, has been a member of parliament for Brightside and Hillsborough constituency in Sheffield since 1987. He's held many positions both in government and in the shadow cabinet, including being shadow health secretary. He's been the education employment secretary, home secretary, and work and pension secretary in uh, Tony Blair's cabinet following the 1997 general election. He was home secretary between 2001 and 2004, which is at the same time as 9-11, which must have been an extremely stressful time for you. Um, this evening, David and Caroline are going to talk to us um, about managing substance misuse in the community and links to criminality, and are also very happy to engage in, in, in a discussion with questions and answers. So I would like to hand over initially to David and, um, and, to and then to Caroline. Thank you very, thank much. You very much. Thank you, and thank you for the invitation, Nigel. I'm going to deal with Nigel Mathers on another occasion. Nigel uh, was a practitioner uh, in my constituency and then gradually uh, morphed into the university and now as a morph to China. Uh, and having arranged for us to have this evening, oh, about a year ago, I, I expected him to put us first, but he hasn't. Um, I understand entirely why he'd want to encourage uh, uh, the, uh, the training program and uh, the rewards that would undoubtedly come to Britain. And if we carry on making GPs' lives a misery, I'm well informed by Margaret. Um, that uh, we'll need to train Chinese doctors to come and work here. Um, I, I know we've got doctors and lawyers tonight. Um, I don't quite know what to make of that. We just need accountants. And we've got a nap hand. Um, actually, you know, the health service has been full of them for a long time. Uh, anyway, hasn't it? Caroline and I have agreed that we'll do just a short introduction, 10 minutes each, and say where we're coming from and what the experience is, and then have a conversation briefly t with each other, and then have a conversation with you. And we hope very much that you'll join in because it ought to be participative. Uh, more participative than when I ad addressed a GP drugs conference, uh, a national drugs conference, which happened to be held in Sheffield when I was Home Secretary. 
and it was a Friday morning when I got there first thing and I have to tell you that most of the delegates seem to be very worse for wear from the night before. Uh, so at least we're in good shape tonight. Um, there's been an enormous amount going on in terms of the debate around uh, drug and substance abuse, about the relationship between treatment and criminality, uh, about how we uh, both uh, develop treatment and how we discourage usage. Uh, at the end of last year, the independent UK Drugs Policy Commission reported with some very interesting uh, recommendations. Uh, we've had very recently an interesting commission in the, uh, the town of Brighton about how they should proceed and whether there should be, I mean, they're terrible titles for these things, aren't they, about shooting up galleries and all the rest of it. Uh, and today we've had the Prison Governors Association of all people um, who seem to be slightly confused about the relationship of um, the, the law to, uh, to treatment, but are at least engaging uh, in the issues, and I think that's really very much to be welcomed. What I think we need to do is to get the main political parties to be prepared to come together and agree that a, a very thorough look on the back of the Independent uh, Drugs Policy uh, Commission at where we should be going over the next 25 years would be very helpful. I say all three parties because it's such a difficult and sensitive issue that if one political party goes it alone, they're bound to be chopped to pieces in terms of the way it's presented um, in the media. Uh, very recently, uh, the Mail, and you would expect the Mail to get something wrong, but the Telegraph as well, reported uh, in the same vein on almost the same day about two pieces of research, one from Newcastle University, uh, led by um, Nils uh, Brackmans, and uh, one led uh, at the Institute for Fiscal Studies, both of whom were reported in the same breath, both of whom turn out, well, in the Newcastle t t uh, case, turn out to be absolutely livid with the press, and in the IFS case, I'm livid with them because their research was so poor that you wouldn't even begin to dream of publishing it. Um, the Newcastle study are so angry that they've not only taken it up with the Telegraph who have taken it down from their website and with the mail, but they've also put their information online. Um, they, they were allegedly suggesting uh, that the aftermath of the 2004 reclassification had led to a massive increase in crime uh, and uh, usage of cannabis. Uh, and I, I just read from what they said. We also do not evaluate the 2004, uh, they call it declassification. It's interesting that, that even researchers thought it was a declassification, whereas actually it was a reclassification. I only mention this to show how confused the situation is over drug and substance abuse and how even those who are very good and who I happen to agree with um, can get it wrong because they go on to say, we, 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 we make it very clear uh, in the paper uh, that our study does not say anything uh, about the overall uh, effect of the 2004 declassification uh, and our results should not be interpreted uh, as evidence that the declassification was bad. Well, leave aside it was not a declassification. I'm very pleased that they did find that, but the reports were entirely different. And the point 
I'm making, and the reason I'm raising it, is that getting a sensible debate on these issues has been virtually impossible. Getting people to actually sit down and work out what they want to do and how they will get there has been extraordinarily difficult. In 2001, I inherited uh, the, the drugs issue because that was the job of the Home Secretary. The Drugs Commission suggests that it might be the Health Secretary, but I have to tell you that the Department of Health ran a mile when I suggested that they might actually take the policy on as opposed to developing the National Treatment Agency. And they ran even faster when we suggested that they should uh, actually develop a, 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 an alcohol strategy. In the end, you, it's hard to believe this, it was the Home Office that had to lead and, and take a grip in terms of the alcohol strategy, which had gone virtually nowhere by the time I left. So I claim no credit whatsoever for nothing because uh, we, we didn't do very well. We had conversations with uh, the, um, the brewers and the distillers uh, and their representatives, and we went round and round in circles. But we did get somewhere jointly on the National Treatment Agency, and I'm very proud of the investment that went in uh, over those years and has had a substantial impact on drug usage uh, at every level. Uh, I'm proud that that led into the recovery program and there's a great deal more that needs to be done because simply detoxifying and treatment on its own is, is only one small step. And I'm pleased that we're at least beginning to re-engage with what Caroline's going to talk about uh, in relation to harm reduction and uh, what should happen there. Another interesting little snippet that came out on the back of the Institute for Fiscal Studies uh, report which was all about Lambeth in 2002-03 and what had happened and their findings allegedly that more people had gone into hospital. Um, well, somebody's responded very cleverly saying not surprising that that happened because there was an experimental needle exchange uh, in uh, Brixton at the time uh, which was deliberately intended to increase the take-up of hospital provision uh, in order to deal with the medical consequences of abuse. In other words, there was a deliberate effort to get people to present and therefore to be admitted and therefore to have their symptoms dealt with uh, as well as trying to get them uh, to accept treatment. What we never really sorted out was how you squared the circle on ensuring that treatment and harm reduction came first and the criminal law was used more effectively against those who were involved in supply so that we were actually able to deal with the results of uh, people becoming addicted, deal with their immediate medical problems, then encourage and support them and their families because I've discovered over the years that if you don't actually relate to and work with the family you're missing a a major trick not just in helping the individual but because the family are often victims as all of you know um, very well from the work that you're doing and you wouldn't be here uh, wanting to discuss and engage if you weren't already interested. Th those families are uh, as much the victim as the person who has become addicted uh, and to deal with those problems in a way that didn't actually then lead automatically to criminalising somebody and using the prison service uh, as a, an alternative to proper community treatment uh, and to recovery. Uh, I remember a parent 
a, a, a drug user, a class A drug user, coming to my constituency and saying to me that she was in despair because the only way she knew of getting her son from criminality to feed his habit and to get him some attention was to report him to the police and hope that he would be arrested uh, and would subsequently then get into the system. And this was back in 2001 and it made a deep impression on me that we should actually have very clear alternatives to people getting themselves into such despair that they would want to go down that route. As I say, we, we did make some progress. We nearly diverted because John Burt, who was previously Director General of the BBC, was taken on to do some blue sky thinking uh, in Downing Street by Tony Blair and almost convinced Tony to go in a, an opposite direction of just focusing on the criminality and seeing drug abuse in, in, in that prism rather than actually trying to work out where we were going to go in uh, encouraging treatment, avoiding uh, the, the criminal justice system where we could and using the, the system of law enforcement more effectively on clamping down on those who were organized criminals and therefore exploiting the, the most vulnerable. The only thing I can offer you tonight as a real encouragement is that we know and you know that new chemical substances apart there has been the most enormous drop in drug usage uh, uh, from class A all the way through to class C uh, in this country and whilst we're dealing with the aftermath of the heroin and to some extent uh, crack up surge of years ago and we're dealing with 40 and 50 year olds that Caroline knows much more about than I do uh, and we still have very major problems in terms of their health and well-being we have made some real progress and unless we take hope and actually are prepared to rejoice in the progress we make then people become demoralized and hopeless about the situation and they believe uh, that there's no point in uh, taking further more radical and imaginative measures I think there is I think it's very difficult because if you've got a son or a daughter uh, who is likely to be uh, engaged with for all sorts of reasons because of family circumstance because of uh, depression because of what's happening to them in terms of their personal life if they become vulnerable to uh, being uh, encouraged to pick up drugs and if with the development of skunk uh, they're more likely to move from taking cannabis into more dangerous uh, class A drugs you're not going to be very pleased with me and my efforts back in 2004 uh, to try and have a, a different sort of conversation. All I can offer you is that actually the substantial reduction in usage of young people in particular gave me some hope that education information as well as sending the right signals actually does make an enormous difference. And I'm going to hand over to Caroline who will talk to you about real research rather than political anecdote. Thank you very much indeed. Hello. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to talk to you. I just thought I'd just try and get an idea of our audience today. Um, about how many of you are lawyers? 
And how many of you medics? And of, uh, and of the physicians here? And um, how many people are psychiatrists with a special interest in substance misuse? Good, you'll know a lot more than, than I will. Um, uh, general practitioners? And physicians who've had to deal with the medical consequences of uh, substance misuse and alcohol dependence? Okay, I would have thought that was everyone. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, so why, uh, why would a GP have a special interest in substance misuse? Well, I suppose I'm a Jill of all, <laughs> all trades and a mistress of none. Um, I think it's because general practitioners or a family doctor like myself, we see ourselves as, as placed within the heart of the community. Um, we manage chronic illness and we manage the impact of that on the individual and on the wider, uh, on the wider family and uh, on the community. And I think we do see addiction problems as a, as a chronic illness with a, a very significant impact a very, uh, on terms of uh, mortality, morbidity, um, and as well as criminality and, um, and, uh, and the wider effect on the family. Um, we know that uh, over the years that substance misusers have very poor physical and mental health compared to their, their peers in their age group. And primary care uh, clinics were, were sort of adopted um, really out of frustration with the enormous waiting lists that there were sort of back in the 1990s for specialist care. Um, GPs just felt desperate, you know, just like David with his constituency clinics. We just had people, you know, week in, week out coming into our surgery saying, please help. Um, so, for example, in, in, um, in Sheffield in 1999, there had been... There are huge numbers of people um, with uh, problems with heroin addiction. And uh, we somehow managed, my colleague Dr. Jenny Keane, who now sits as a national advisor within, uh, uh, at the RCGP, um, with other colleagues, set up a primary care addiction service within Sheffield. And straight away, 400 patients registered. And um, because of the way the clinic was set up, there was a waiting list and um, people uh, uh, opted in to become a cohort of patients where we could follow up long-term um, both their outcomes in terms of treatment and also their physical and social functioning using validated outcome measures, the OT, which you know, the specialists would know. Um, and what that's enabled us to do over 11 years, we've just done the sort of final sort of data collection, is sort of see what happens really. Um, these, these patients also consented freely, happily, um, to access to their, uh, to their uh, criminal justice records. So it became a unique cohort that could look at the real, the wider context and look at those group outcomes. And over the years, we've, uh, we've shown, and uh, there's been a number of publications, the opiate substitution therapy, uh, you know, from the very start it was mostly methadone, um, is an effective treatment in a primary care community clinic. It was shown to reduce mortality, uh, illicit drug use, crime and risk-taking behaviour, and it also in, um, improved physical, mental and social functioning over that time. 
Um, one thing that was really important was that continue, the longer people stayed in treatment and engaged with treatment, the better the outcomes. So, the long, so you know, we, do it, we did expect, the, the, the team did expect um, that people would engage with treatment, disengage, engage and disengage. But over, over time, the clinic itself has grown to have a, a very modern protocol-led, guideline-led, um, holistic approach to care. Um, there's pregnancy clinics. Um, they, I mean, so, for example, they're early adopters of screening for blood-borne viruses. Um, they recognize the importance of screening for sexual health, about contraception, about early diagnosis of pregnancy, because traditionally this group of women often presented late, and so on. We're able to use that kind of primary care focus to improve the, he the health of this group of patients. And then over time, as the clinic filled up and our waiting times increased, they then engaged a whole set of GPs in a, an educational program that helped develop their knowledge and skills and uh, enabled them to adopt evidence-based guidelines so that stabilised um, patients were able to be moved out to their practices and go and have their care, opiate substitution therapy, with their own GPs. So, I mean, I suppose that's just a... a, a uh, an example of Sheffield, but I know that across the country there's been other clinics like that. Um, I think I'll probably stop there, really. Come and have a conversation. Yes. I, so. I won't interview you, you've got to interview me. Okay. <laughs> Except I want to start off by asking you about the, the prescribing and opiates and whether um, we ever will come back to the experiment. Correct me, I'm sure the audience will. But in the 1970s, was it not right that we, we tried um, experiments with uh, heroin prescribing and it's, it, it all went wrong, partly because people were selling it on the street and diluting it and partly because a couple of GPs got themselves in bother mm. on it and whether you think we might, we might go down that route rather than turning to methadone or whether that's what we're on. Uh, personally, I don't, I don't think so, and I don't hear from my colleagues in the field that, that that's going to happen. Um, there are new and novel uh, types of treatments that are being used, um, you know, buprenorphine and, other, and naltrexone and other types of interventions. And are, that, are, they, are they less um, addictive? Ah. I mean, do they help with getting people off? That's what I'm trying to... So is this the abstinence uh, versus recovery versus um, maintenance? Does anybody well, have, what, what are people's thoughts on that? Nigel, you're going to yes. have to help us. Hello. Sorry, yeah. do you want to say who you are in your background? To me, that's heroin. Yeah. Thing is, the dimorphine, they're injecting dimorphine, so 
my experience, I, I actually say it's, a, it, it's one of the therapeutic concepts that have given down all the... There was the riot trial that they did, and uh, looking at it, but again, from experience, it's something that I think would be actually be the wrong way to go in terms of actually trying to get... So is that really parking people? Is that what you're saying? Can I say, do you think that's influenced by the political agenda and about people's perceptions of what addiction is? Exactly. Well, no, no, I don't, I don't think it is because you, you're interested as doctors, those of you who are doctors, in harm reduction, but as, as a societal thing, there's nothing to do with politics, yeah. but as a society, we, we don't just want to eliminate the harm, we want to eliminate the consequences and, and the likelihood of other people taking it up. And while people are addicted, they're also engaged in other... I mean, just to take prostitution, I mean, the thing that horrified me most, and I got very heavily involved with parents of young women who'd, uh, whose daughters had, had got engaged in this, I mean, it is overwhelmingly that they're on... that they're hooked, and they're hooked by not just the, the drug, they're hooked by the people supplying the drug. And, organized by them and it's it's heartbreaking so it's not just avoiding harm to them in the in the straight medical sense is it it's getting it's a societal problem as well and, and that's exactly it and again you know i practice and again we don't just think about physical harm reduction it's actually harm reduction to society and actually a good drug service actually keeps a lot of individuals away from society for a period of time to remove them from crime, to remove them from A&E, remove them from the GPs, to get them stabilised and then to integrate them back into society. But realistically, this can take you know, years and years actually to do it. And it's very expensive. It, it, it's bound to be if you're using it, residential. It, it is expensive, but, but again, there's a lot of kind of like, you know, again, I think really in terms of addiction, is actually, well, we've shown that actually it's actually cost-effective treatment. Right, we need somebody else coming mm. in now, just, yeah. don't yeah, we? Yeah, we do. Right. Anybody else with a point they'd like to raise? Be argumentative, come on. Come on. Well, so, uh... so gentlemen, did you want to say something? No, not this stage. Okay. Yes, go on then, thank you. Um, hello, and uh, actually, David, I, I was one of the few... Uh, fairly awake members of the audience in Sheffield <laughs> nine years ago. Um, my, my question for you would, would be, I think, if, if you um, were Home Secretary now, um, unlike the current government, uh, would you 
knowing what we know now, supports uh, decriminalization of using illicit drugs. Um, and just to add to that, I think that, that now, quite a few years down the track, you're right, a lot fewer Class A drug users, but actually we've got a lot of the tricky ones left. We've, we've managed to, to help a lot of the, the ones who, who were easier to help. Uh, we've got harder ones who, who are, um, a lot of them embroiled in criminal justice, which I unashamedly would say I think is getting in the way. So uh, I'm interested in what you think. Well, let me put it this way. What, what, what would I do? The first thing I'd do, I would try and persuade, if I had a Prime Minister persuadable, that we had a complete rethink on the classification levels. Instead of messing about, as we did 10 years ago, on just reclassifying um, cannabis, I would suggest that we have a, a whole look so that, it, as the Independent Drugs Commission recommended, we, we take a look at the whole range of uh, substances that affect our health and well-being and, and, and the harm reduction that goes with it, so that we'd have a much more sensible approach. Secondly, we try and distinguish where we were offering people an alternative to the criminal justice route, so that it was clear. We, we half did it in terms of saying, if you were picked up, you could choose to go into treatment rather than go through the, the courts and, and be uh, sentenced. But we didn't do the full hog on it in saying this is a very clear alternative route. If you're, if you're prepared to face up to the problem you've got and we're prepared to help you, then we'll go down a different route. The third thing then relates to your really hard question. I wouldn't go in for decriminalization and for this reason. I think that the Dutch and the Portuguese have got themselves in a real muddle. In, in Holland, um, it's, it, it's, it's not illegal in the circumstances laid down to, to take the drug, but it's illegal to produce the drug and it's illegal to hold the paraphernalia or the equipment or to, to run the, the laboratory to produce it. Uh, and they've had to do that because otherwise it's a free-for-all. If you're going to make money and you'd make money on the market whether it was illegal or not. You might not make quite so much if it was, if it was legal uh, because that's what de decriminalization means. You can't decriminalize unless you legalize. I, ju I just don't think you can. And the minute you do that, you may, you may make it less profitable. You make it very much more attractive for very more people entering into the field. Um, and given the poppy uh, fields of Afghanistan, uh, and, okay, okay, the organized criminals making a lot of money out of it, but given the, the, the money that can be made from that, who, who wouldn't see the market develop and people going out to actually recruit people to do it? So the, the, the criminal law and the, the fact that it is criminal to, to both produce, supply, and use actually does send a major signal that is part of the information and education campaign. And I'm, I'm as contradictory as anybody else, because in, a, in, a, you know, in the ideal world, I wouldn't want it to be uh, the criminal justice system that there was the bottom line. But I can't see any other way of doing it. And the minute you open it up, it's a market like tobacco has been. And it's taken us years to actually start pulling in the use of tobacco and the misuse that affects other people. I'm, I'm very proud that I was one of the three cabinet members who stood firm 
on the fact that we should uh, ban use of tobacco in all public places and didn't get into the arguments about, well, rooms here or working men's clubs there. And the tr transformation that you'll have all seen in the health of your patients in terms of that simple measure leads me to believe that we could do so much more with this hard-edged element of, of abuses that do us harm, uh, including um, having a sensible debate about alcohol, which I have to say I found more difficult because I like wine. Um, as Margaret knows, I like it very much. And, and at the moment, I'm on the wagon just to prove to myself that I can uh, and clean my kidneys out a bit. But it, we have a complete contradiction, like the rest of most of us, not everybody, but I'm a contradiction. I, I want people not to use uh, illicit and dangerous substances. I want people not to smoke, but I like to drink red wine. Caroline. Well, I was, uh, well, I'll just, uh, there were two things I was going to say, really. Um, one, I just wondered what people, uh, really about looking at uh, therapeutic options as an alternative to, uh, to sentencing. And uh, I, I, there, is actu there are actually schemes which allow you to have, under your probation order, to have treatment orders within the community or treatment provision. However, um, they're actually already subject to the marketisation. So, in fact, what will happen with those they call dip or whatever in um, in South Yorkshire is that um, is that people are contracted to provide that kind of opiate substitution therapy that stabilization therapy but that's divorced from the local NHS facilities so the people have packages of treatment with um, with often with clinicians who are you know employed on sort of temporary locum contracts and don't provide the continuity of care that's actually needed and that kind of uh, idea that people may relapse and may need treatment and are better to be in touch either with specialist clinics like yourselves or with specialist community clinics or with a GP with a special interest in their own practice that provides continuity of care over a period of time. Um, and I've got a concern because I think actually uh, a lot of the addiction services are actually ripe for the picking in terms of alternative providers and that they're being edged out and costed, um, you know, because there's a market in terms of providing a, a service to the criminal justice, uh, to, to criminal justice services. There's a market in terms of selling those services. And, and sometimes with the guidelines and protocols and, a, and the recovery agenda, it's very easy to say, we'll give X months of treatment and then you're on your own. And um, there isn't really the research evidence that says that's a good way of managing what is likely to be a chronic problem. So Sorry. What, what physically, where, where, where are these people then being prescribed? Um, they're prescribed by a, a provider uh, service, a health provider service that provides opiate substitution therapy alongside their probation order for a period of time and then as long as they stick with that for a period of time then that's an alternative to uh, to uh, uh, other sentences. Uh, will this now be funded through the CCG or the DATS? Or well, that's a very good question. I haven't got a clue. I think it's through the National Treatments Agency, actually, but so uh, I don't know. Sorry, there's a gentleman there in a black... Uh, with the, holding the microphone, and he put his hand to pay to go somewhere. Yeah. I, I'm Mike Harris. I'm a forensic psychiatrist and a health service bureaucrat. Um, I just wanted to challenge David, actually, or both Davids, interestingly, that, uh, David Blunkett, on what you you just said in terms of an assumption that if you decriminalise, then you'll automatically uh, free up people to take more and we'll have an absolute explosion 
in the use of opiates particularly, and I'm not sure the evidence is there for that at all. Um, and whether you can have decriminalization and control of the market. Um, you, I mean, you cited tobacco, and we've actually put a whole range of controls into smoking. You can't smoke in public places. You can't smoke in health service buildings or health service premises. Uh, we haven't done anything yet to control the tobacco manufacturers, I have to say, or, or to criminalize the people who actually produce um, tobacco products. But is, is there really any evidence, or in fact, I don't think there is any evidence, to say that we would have that explosion? Because there's no doubt that young people are using a whole range of substances um, that they can obtain. And I think as politicians, whichever political party, we've got to grasp this because... As we pull out of Afghanistan, we're undoubtedly going to have an absolute explosion in the, in the availability of, of heroin coming from the sort of poppy fields that we have significantly failed to do anything about. Um, and, and David Ryans, I just wanted to challenge on, actually, because when you talked about the people you've inherited who are on heroin and that for them it, it's a cul-de-sac, and I, I'm sure it is. But of course you've inherited the failures, you've inherited the people who have not been successfully able to be taken off over a period of time, the people who were, if you like, habitual users, and, and, and there was a failure completely before. I haven't come across one patient that's been actually willing to come off darmorphine, even from the ones I've inherited. We're talking about people that have been on darmorphine for literally about 20 to 30 years and the only way that we've managed actually to, to stop the darmorphine is when either they become so unwell that we just can't prescribe it or we actually discover that they're actually selling it and giving it away and then we stop it and but it, it's incredibly difficult and um, it, it is something that um, I must admit, you know, it, it does tend to be... I mean, the, the thing with the diamorphine ones is that when you actually end up prescribing it to them, you have actually tried everything else. And often, they end up on diamorphine because, you know, all of the treatment options have failed. But often, just to give an example, there's, there's quite, several of them in Nottingham that have been on diamorphine for perhaps about 20 to 30 years. And the reason that they were initially put on diamorphine is that there were actually heavy-end drug dealers doing a lot of drug dealing, and actually it was, it, was, it was actually prescribed to reduce the crime and actually to remove them away from... So a lot of it was to, to do actually in terms of minimising crime. Um, but the trouble is, if we, if, you know, we can't get them off it, really. So I still think methadone and buprenorphine are actually better treatments. And, and the thing is, again, without hopping on too much about diamorphine, it is... It's the ultimate treat. They enjoy taking it. Why would they want to stop taking it? They, they don't. You know, whereas methadone, you know, again, there are downsides to methadone. And, uh, that, um, but I think that, you know, the debate's still out there, really. And the, the question you asked me, I mean, I'm still struggling to square the circle. I mean, if you... My, my belief is that decriminalisation would open, as I said earlier, would, would open up to those who would still internationally be organising the, the supply chain. And, but but they'd, when they got to our country and they were engaged in supply on the street, they, they would believe themselves to be f free of penalty. And I don't think tobacco is, a, is a, a, an equal example because we haven't 
deter we, do we don't actually take any penalty at all against people who uh, smoke in their own homes, um, but we, we do enforce against people who now smoke publicly, but we, we, we don't carry it to the logical extreme, which is if we believe it's so bad that people shouldn't smoke in public places and they are harming other people when they do so and they're above all harming themselves, we should actually ban it, shouldn't we? Well, you know, I just think if we believe that it's so harmful and it kills you, we should ban it. But we can't. I mean, not just politically, but socially we can't. We have, issues of, we have issues of child abuse and, and the effect of five people smoking close to their children. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Hi. Um, do you, so here you are. <coughs> I'm a GP with no special interest these days in drug abuse, though when I was a full-time psychiatrist, I did work in drug dependence. But I'm wondering if the research people and the specialists are missing a trick here. Uh, for nearly two years, I was a prescribed high user of opiates because I had... Uh, a disc problem and I stopped using them the day I had my laminectomy and I've had no trouble since either with the pain in my back or indeed any problem at all in stopping taking them I just stopped that was it you know I never had any longing for more I never had any continuing problems in any way at all and we tend to look at the addicts after they have become addicts I'm wondering why it would be, I'm wondering if it would be a good idea if some research were done before people become addicted to see why people are susceptible to addiction and others are not. Uh, we all know that people who become drug users have social factors involved. This is very obvious to the case. But it seems to me that other factors, you know, metabolic factors, psychological factors, uh, which be predisposed to drug use and abuse, are actually being a bit neglected. You got any views on that? Like picking it up, you know, very early. No, like, beforehand. No, you mean just, just research into which people, which adolescents, which children are predisposed either genetically or uh, otherwise to abusing drugs. Because I have to, th I have to think that there must be some aspect. And, and, and do we know? Do any of you know? Because Caroline, do we know if anybody's doing some? work on this link, perhaps to child and adolescent mental health services and the like? Because it would be a really good thing to do. Well, you'd have to follow up a large cohort to, uh, to do it prospectively, research-wise. Uh, you, uh, you'd have to follow up a large group of children and, sit and, and, uh, and look at that. Retrospectively, um, addiction um, you know, is a complex area, but generally social deprivation, um, childhood trauma... Um, uh, living with a parent who has addiction problems, um, all of these things increase your risk. Um, the availability of the drug um, locally, the availability of the money to buy it, all of those are factors that influence uptake. Um, what, it, what is interesting... Except actually, cocaine, oh, right. in which case you, you need to be you know, going to London clubs and have rich Don't parents. you believe it? They sell them in the pubs of Sheffield. <laughs> and so they tell us. And, but, I mean, in fact, the drug strategy, uh, you know, there's a prognostic concept of uh, recovery capital. And those are the personal sort of biopsychosocial fa uh, uh, 
resources on which a person can draw in their, in their recovery journey. So I agree, somebody who's got more going for them, in whatever sense, is more likely, is less likely in the first place to become addicted, but is also more likely to be able to engage with treatment and uh, move quicker and further along a recovery capital, capital a recovery journey in a more effective way and also to minimise the harm on those around them, either their immediate family or their children. So and what do, do you not mean family when you say, you know, when you're talking about social capital? Are you, are you not talking about the immediate family and friends who can see people yes, through this? Yes, yes, yes. Because we, we therefore need to put a lot more resource into helping them. But also employment. Employment, if you're, if you're employed and you're addicted, you are much more likely to be able to engage with treatment. And if you stay employed, just as with any other chronic illness, your outcomes are better. So, so do we ought to engage with employers in a much yeah. more comprehensive occupational health program? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of these things. Except possibly. people don't want to admit it because at the yeah. moment they're likely to lose their job. That maybe. Sorry. But isn't that part of the point? I don't understand how you can compare success in terms of smoking tobacco, which is legal, with success in harm reduction in, in drugs, which are illegal. Isn't, wouldn't it be better if um, there was legalisation and then it, it is more controllable and there can be um, things put in place? And isn't it more about education and all the other services around that rather than having involved in the criminal justice system and forcing people in and yes people do lose their jobs because it is a criminal activity whereas with smoking surely that success in terms of managing that has because it is because it is legal um, and so it can be managed and it can be upfront and overt and lots of things put in place rather than a huge illegal trade which is is very lucrative well, so if we use tobacco as an example, I'd say one of the great things of, of, of the NHS is to allow people to access... I mean, of course, the public health initiatives in restricting the places that you can smoke. But as a doctor, for the first time, I was able to say to people, you can have access to nicotine replacement therapy, you can have access to, to interventions, brief interventions that are effective in people helping to kick their nicotine habit. So not all people who stop smoking do so because they can no longer smoke at work or you know, in the pub, you know, quite a, a number of our highly addicted patients, uh, patients who are highly addicted to tobacco, get off it um, with the help of nicotine. But, but, but why have we programs. been so successful on the information education? Because we've got across to people that it killed you. I mean, it's as simple as that. And when we were trying to get across to young people about the damage they would do to themselves by taking cannabis, we had to be reasonably honest with them that it wasn't going to kill them. I mean, it might with psychosis, but it wasn't going to kill them, but, but heroin and, well, crack cocaine was, and to try and differentiate. And I'm, I'm just trying to get across that with tobacco, I think people woke up to the fact that if they smoked, they, they got cancer and heart disease, and that was a personal disaster, whereas actually being hooked on a drug is an escape mechanism from which they don't think they're going to die. Can we just take one last question? And there's another person there as well. We've got time for two. Yeah, we've got two. Be very quick. Gosh, it's gone past. Very fast, actually. Sorry. <clears throat> Some years ago, sorry, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a surgical bystander, so um, my question will be rather more general. But uh, some years ago, uh, one was 
sort of frustrated at the uh, rather unsatisfactory interaction between Professor Nutt and I think it was Alan Johnson at the time yeah. over classification of cannabis, and then much more recently between uh, our Prime Minister and the President of the College of Physicians about minimum pricing of alcohol. I wonder if I could ask David Blunkett on his views on the way decisions are taken between uh, a powerful advisor and, and a politician who's got to keep the lid on it. Okay, and then do you want to take the second one, Caroline and, and Nigel, and then we can do them together? Yeah, thank you, Chancellor. One more question. Yeah? Hi. Um, I just want to say that the parallel between uh, smoking tobacco and uh, the legalisation of, um, of opiates or heroin, um, I, don't, I don't really believe you can, you can make that, that parallel. Um, for A, that people who take heroin normally take heroin outside of the health system um, are people who have, um, like, the, sorry, I've forgotten your name. Caroline. Caroline. Um, have social depreda depredation, often come from very chronic, uh, chronically dysfunctional families, and indeed don't come into health services for numbers of years. Mm -hmm. Many of the people we see actually have carried on drug taking for a number of years before their problematic drug use leads them into a service, by which time you've got um, a, a population that may not have worked, uh, that have never really been to school, that have gone through some awful childhood trauma. And, and, and you know, heroin in itself doesn't allow people to function daily. Smoking tobacco, you can function on a daily basis. Um, People who are on prescribed medication, uh, be it methadone or buprenorphine, long-acting medication, are able to function. What are we saying? That we legalise and then there'll still be, there would still be illicit heroin, well, there would still be illegal heroin out there, and then we'd have a population who wouldn't be functioning, perhaps as adequately as we would hope people to function. And... Whilst people take heroin, they are not able to cognitive. They, they develop less emotionally, they're cognitively disabled, and they don't make sound decisions. You know, this is a, a depressant medication, which once you've obviously reached a, a daily dose and you're okay, maybe then you can function properly. And I'm sure there's lots of people who have, but we might be talking about the, the more functional members of society, those people who can hold jobs down, you know, high-powered jobs and still take cocaine and still take heroin. But it, it's, it's the few, because what we're talking about, I'm going to finish there, is, you know, the population that we see mainly are the, you know, the people who don't cope well, got comorbidities, anxieties, depression, low mood, and a number of other things that don't allow them to just stop taking heroin um, or opiates um, because they're not functional human beings to begin with. Well, can I just say that I think that what you've said and what's been said throughout the hour is a critical example of why we need to continue a, a sensible, rational debate. And if we could get across party agreement to a 
to a, a much broader review that had government support it would be a, a very good thing to do but we're, up, we're really up against it in terms of the way these issues are, are dealt with on the David Cameron has just uh, declined to do so yeah. yeah well I think it's really really unfortunate um, especially as David was on the all-party common select committee when they recommended at the same time as I was doing it that they should reclassify cannabis. Um, the ACMD, I mean, I was quite warm to the ACMD, mainly because what they recommended I had a predilection for. So you're always on, in favour of somebody who's recommending something you already feel is instinctively the right thing to do. It, my, my I, mean, I like Alan Johnson a lot, and I've met David Nutt a number of times, including recently on, um, on Radio 4 Start the Week. Uh, and, and I think that it was an artificial disagreement because it was perfectly possible for the ACMD and for David chairing it to actually have a, a very clearly spelt out view on the basis of uh, those contributing through the ACMD to a rational recommendation and at the same time for the Home Secretary to say politically this is not on, especially as uh, Jackie Smith and, and Alan, because Jackie... Um, was involved with it, uh, actually um, had Gordon breathing down their neck and G Gordon wanted to send a signal uh, and chose to do it in that way. And I thought it was unfortunate that they fell out rather than saying we're both big enough to actually be able to deal with this in a rational way. I didn't agree that actually it was comparable with falling off a racehorse or something that David was on about, but I could see where he was coming from in trying to have a rational discussion about comparative harm reductions and the way in which we should go, and we should still have that debate. And I'm going to uh, finish my last comment because I agree about the holistic assessment, the holistic approach about alcohol. I think it, uh, it's the, one of the biggest problems in the community that I work with is the change in alcohol consumption. We're just, in my community, we're burying people young. I think alcohol is going to become, there's going to become the social divide in it that we saw in tobacco where doctors stopped and politicians and the people who knew and read the evidence actually started to get their units into safe limits because they read what happened to people. And by the way, generally. I know somebody very close to me who's said exactly the exactly same, same to me thing. in the you last week. Within the units. Yeah. I had two consultations with two women under 30, um, both of whom have young children who are consuming 50 to 60 units a week. When I said, how much are you drinking? Yeah. One of them said, oh, I just buy it in crates, but it's better because I'm now not on vodka. This is normal for my practice to see every single day. And what people are getting is they're moving from social dependence, uh, so, sort of from being able to have a normal relationship with alcohol with social dependence, I can't go out and have a nice time without a drink. Psychological dependence, I come home from work, oh, it's been really stressful, my life's really stressful, I need a drink. People are drinking it like Coca-Cola at home. And uh, the units that people are consuming are causing significant harm. We're, we're burying people um, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, and people have completely underestimated the impact on cognitive function, early dementia, neuropathy. And, it's in, and if you look at harm, it's versus units, and they're people in the background, they've got enough money to drink, they're functioning, they're not crashing their cars, but they're chronically drinking at high level. It's become normalised to fill a third of your, quar of your trolley with yeah. uh, Thank God I'm on the cheap booze. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and certainly that, that mirrors the same as my practice in Eastwood, which is an old mining town, yeah. where people yeah. will drink 100 units a, a, a week. Yeah. And 
think that's normal. Yeah, mm. normal so, for Woodhouse. With that, I... Yeah, think well, that's cheered us up, hasn't it? <laughs> 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 we'll all go away and have a drink. Um, very good. Now, thank you very much indeed for, uh, for this talk. It's been just great and stimulating, and I'm just so grateful for you both coming today. And Dr. Mike Elliott is the uh, president of the Nottingham Medico Legal Society, who uh, is just coming down the stairs just to say a few words of thanks. My entrance? <laughs> <laughs> we should clap you down. Mr. President. I'd like to ask the Society to offer a very warm vote of thanks uh, to our two speakers tonight. Uh, we don't often have two speakers for the price of one, but we've had two very good speakers tonight. Dr. Williamson, who has shown the great depth of her knowledge and experience in uh, a difficult area, and Mr. David Blunkett, who, having been in charge of the big picture, has given us the benefit of his views on the matter. And um, we're very grateful to you because it's made it different kind of meeting from our usual ones, and may I ask you all to show your appreciation. Thanks very much. Thank you. And I've got the question at the end, but I've got to get myself in here. And so you're both, you're both on the same page. And thank you very much. And just a reminder, the next meeting is on the 15th of May, which is the Tony Mitchell Memorial Lecture, and we have Professor Julia Hipsley cox um, giving that lecture. So we look forward to seeing you in three weeks' time. Very good.